You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Let me just kind of locate us and orient us. Uh, Today we're continuing in our series um, that we've titled Discovering Your Identity and Calling, and uh, we're discovering together what it means to be the men and women God has created us to be, and then we're practicing that together in community. And so um, the basic idea that we're going to unpack today and next week is that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us on this kind of two-dimensional journey. On the one hand, he calls us on this inward journey. It's a journey of going within yourself and discovering your true identity, your true self. And then he calls us on this outward journey of discovering our calling or what we might call our vocation. And so today we're going to look at the inward journey, and then next week we're going to unpack the outward journey. And so with that, look with me at Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. Hopefully you found it by now. We'll also have it on the screen for you, but we'll start in verse 14. We'll read through verse 19. So this is what Paul says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let me uh, pray for us one more time. Would you pray for me as I pray for you? So, Father, I uh, I thank you that, um, that your word is good and right and true and that it never returns void, which just takes all the pressure off of preachers in moments like these. God, your word's already been read, so in a sense, like, I don't have to do anything. So I just pray that as your word is kind of sticking in our souls right now, you would awaken our hearts to see um, the beauty of Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to obey this word that he has for us. And I pray that every person would be filled with hope, just as as walls um, that we've constructed around our hearts are kind of torn down, and the gospel seed can really take root. And we can know the glories of the love that you have for us in Jesus and rest. And I just pray that you would help us do that. I pray that you would help Jesus' invitation of come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I pray that that would just be the word that we would hear from you this morning. You would give us the faith to respond. So um, use me for the next few moments and open our ears and our eyes and our hearts. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, In the early hours uh, of April 15th, 1912, on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City, the Titanic sank when it hit an iceberg. It collided with an iceberg um, in the icy waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. And uh, as we know, tragically, over 1,500 people lost their lives, including uh, Jack, even though... (laughs) There was plenty of room for both he and Rose on that piece of wood. That's still a source of contention between James Cameron and myself, but I won't go into that. Uh, What I will say is that it was a great tragedy, right? Ship strikes an iceberg, goes down, lots of people die. And and we know the story, right? You know that um, at at the time that this uh, occurred, the Titanic was the strongest, most well-built, most luxurious ship ever conceived. And it was thought to be unsinkable. 
As one crew member reportedly said, not even God himself could sink this ship. The problem is that what they didn't see and they didn't know is that something was waiting for them beneath the surface to sabotage the life of this ship. And so essentially the Titanic was destroyed because they failed to see and deal with what was going on beneath the surface. Um, The same thing is true for you and me. Okay? The same thing is true for you and me when it comes to our spiritual lives and our relationships if we don't acknowledge and deal with what's going on beneath the surface of our lives. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says that human beings are like icebergs. So anytime you see a human being, you're only getting a fraction of the truth. What you can see on the outside is about a fraction of the truth. Like an iceberg, there's always a whole lot more that's going on beneath the surface that nobody else can see. Um, Undealt with emotional pain, um, unrepentant sin, family of origin baggage, false narratives that you live out of, guilt, fear, and shame, self-condemning voices, right? Loss and grief and all these kinds of things, anger that you don't know what to do with, all this stuff cooking in us beneath the surface. What is it that's bubbling beneath the surface of your life right now that nobody else in this room except for Jesus can see? And maybe the, the thing about an iceberg is they're deceptive. Oftentimes we can't even see what's going on beneath the surface of our lives, or you don't want to see it. You don't want to face it. The point is this, um, hidden beneath the surface of our lives, for every one of us in this room, there are mass layers of you that remain untouched and unaffected by the gospel. Whole layers of your being that Jesus wants to heal and transform. And if we live our lives above the surface, above the waterline, and we never face that, then we live out of what Christians have for centuries referred to as a false self that wants to sabotage your spiritual life and your relationships with God, with others, and with your very self. And so if that's true, a key task in our discipleship to Jesus is we have to follow Jesus on this inward journey into your heart where the real Jesus meets the real you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that you can be healed and transformed into the person God's created you to be, and so that you can experience the life and the freedom and the joy that you were made to experience. And so for us to see that and for us to kind of take a step towards this inward journey, I just want us to look at Paul's prayer um, in in Ephesians 3 so that you can see that this is actually rooted in the Scriptures. Okay, so go back if you closed your Bible or we'll put it on the screen. Go back to Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. And the first thing that I want us to notice is just what it is that Paul is actually asking God to do for us. What is he praying for you? Um, Look at verse 14. Paul says, hey, you want to know why I get out of bed and hit my knees every morning? The thing I'm asking God to do for you, look at verse 16. I'm asking God that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul says, I'm asking God to strengthen you in your inner being. And so the first thing that Paul wants us to see is that all of us have an inner being. You're not just an outer person. You have an inner being. And when Paul talks about your inner being, he explains, he parallels this in verse 17. He's talking about your heart. And when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not talking about the physical organ that pumps blood throughout your body. It's not talking about, you know, a romantic symbol that was on your Valentine's card on Wednesday, right? But when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about the control center that drives you from the inside, 
It's the deepest part of you that longs for a sense of identity and purpose. And Paul says, here's what I'm praying for you. Here's why I get down on my knees and pray for you. That you would meet the Spirit of God beneath the surface in that location. In your inner being so that your heart can be strengthened. Paul says, that's what I'm praying for you. Now look at why he prays that for you. He he gives us four reasons why he prays that for you. And all of them have to do with relationship to Jesus. This This is beautiful to me. Here's what he says. Four reasons why he prays this. Verse 17, Paul says, I'm praying that you'd be strengthened in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is, this is miraculous and amazing. Paul's saying that the moment you trust Jesus, think about this, Jesus actually takes up residence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. So not only are you in Christ, as Jared talked about last week, he also talked about Christ is in you. You have this union and this communion with God that you were made for. And Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would learn to live out of that core communion with God beneath the surface. That's the first reason why he prays this. Look at the second reason why he prays this. Verse 18, Paul says, I want you to be strengthened in your inner being so that no matter what's going on on the surface of your life that everybody else can see, your identity will be rooted and grounded in Jesus' love for you. No matter what happens, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, what you've lived, what you've suffered, I'm praying you'd have a core foundation, an unshakable confidence that you're perfectly loved by Jesus, and that's who you are. I'm praying you'd be rooted and grounded in that, Paul says. And then thirdly, he says in verse 18, I'm praying you'd be strengthened in your heart so that you'll be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And notice he doesn't tell you what those dimensions are for, but scholars agree that in the context, he's talking about the immeasurable dimensions, the boundless limitations of God's love for you in Jesus. And so Paul's saying, I'm praying you be strengthened in your heart so you can truly know and comprehend just how much God loves you in Jesus. And he says, lastly, I don't want you just to know that in your head. I want you to know that in your heart. Like, I want this to be alive in your inner being. Because look at how he closes this prayer in verse 19. I'm praying you would uh, be strengthened in your hearts, in your inner being, so that you can know the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. I would circle the word know, and I would circle the word knowledge. Because Paul says there's two types of knowledge. There's intellectual knowledge, and then there's intimate knowledge. There's head knowledge, and there's heart knowledge. Both are good, they're just different. But like, it's like for me, I know the Grand Canyon is amazing and beautiful. I know it's awesome and impressive. But the problem is I've never been there to experience it. So I don't have an intimate knowledge of it. Paul's talking to the Ephesians and he says, like, you guys have believed the gospel. That's awesome, man. You're trying to follow Jesus. That's beautiful. Here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the truth that you know in your head would become explosively alive in your heart. I'm praying that you wouldn't just have the information about Jesus. I'm praying you'd have an intimate relationship with Jesus in the core of your being. Paul says, that's what I'm praying for you. And this is the inward journey that Jesus calls all of his disciples into. Chip Dodd describes this inner journey in his book, fantastic little book, The Voice of the Heart. He says, the most difficult and significant journey we could ever take as human beings is only 18 inches long from our head to our heart. It's an inward journey. Here's the big idea. I'll zoom back out for just a second. 
Paul says, you're not just who you are on the outside. Listen to me. You have an inner being. You have a heart that desperately longs to be connected to Jesus. You want to know why? Because your heart was made for Jesus. Your heart was designed for um, relational closeness and connection and communion with Jesus. It's the void you're trying to fill. It's, it's, it's what your heart is crying out for. It's what you're thirsty for. It's what you were made for. But there's a problem. And it's the reason why Paul has to pray for us. Like, why does he have to pray this for us? Obviously, we don't get it, or he wouldn't have to pray this for us. There's something keeping us on the surface. Paul says you'll never experience what your heart was made for if you don't go beneath the surface. And most of us live our lives above the waterline. We're like icebergs, right? If you're a visual person, we can go back to that image for just a second. Okay, so here's an iceberg. Right? If you, if you look at us in, in, in our culture, most of us, the vast majority, live our lives on the surface. Caught up in the rat race, the busyness, um, the distraction, and our addictions, and just doing whatever we can to avoid what's going on below the surface. And, and the same is true when it comes to the way many of us live the Christian life. You look at our lives on the surface, and you look at our heads, and we know stuff about Jesus, which is good. You look at our hands, which represents our lives, and we're often busy doing a lot of stuff for Jesus, which is great. The problem is beneath the surface, our hearts remain functionally disconnected from being with Jesus. And Jesus calls us on this inward journey of taking the gospel into your heart where the real Jesus can meet the real you. And here's the crucial piece to that, guys. Here's what you have to understand. The real Jesus can't meet the real you if you insist on living above the waterline. You want to know why? Because if you're anything like me, the image that you so often project above the waterline ain't the real you. It's, a, it's, it's how you want to be seen. It's a false image that you've constructed to feel safe and loved and accepted. And the sad irony is it's that very image that keeps you disconnected from Jesus and keeps you from giving your heart to him. So you can truly feel loved and accepted and safe. And I have only within the last couple of years become aware of this in my life. Um... What's, uh, what's crazy to me is that it was two years ago today that I stood before my congregation in Kansas City and I told them that um, I was going to take a sabbatical to give myself some space to process all the stuff that was cooking in me beneath the surface. And if you'd looked at my life on the surface, you would have seen, you know, a guy that knew a lot about Jesus, seminary trained, gospel centered. You would have seen a guy that did a lot of stuff for Jesus, good stuff, man, passionate about making disciples, gifted. You would have seen, man, this guy's a pretty gifted, decent pastor. He seems to love God and love his family and, and all of that. Here's the problem. Beneath the surface, my heart was riddled with fear and anxiety. Beneath the surface, I was driven by a fear of failure that nobody else could see. Beneath the surface, I was driven by this compulsive need to compare and perform. Um, I was driven by this lie that I, if I'm not the best, I'm not okay. If I'm not the best, I'm not safe. I had all this unprocessed anger and sadness that I had been for my whole life trying to push down beneath the surface. You want to know what the problem is? Trying to push down your emotional pain is like trying to push a beach ball under the water. Like It's just going to keep popping back up until you deal with it. And I was exhausted, guys. I was exhausted from wearing this mask and playing this game. And I hit, as Jared talked about a couple of weeks ago in his sermon, I hit a wall. I just hit a wall. And Jesus felt a million miles away from me. And the problem is, it wasn't that he was distant, it's that Adam was distant. 
Because I had been living my life trying to hide from him on the surface. And you want to know how I know I'm not the only one in this room who does that? Because Paul prays for all of us that we would go beneath the surface and be strengthened in our hearts. I don't think I'm the only one in this room who has baggage that I don't want to deal with and I don't want to face beneath the surface. Here's why you got to deal with it, though. I mean, it's like the beach ball. It's going to keep coming back. Um, the reason why you have to deal with this, you've got to follow Jesus beneath the surface and apply the gospel to this stuff, is because, A, guys, it really is there. And it's, it's about embracing reality. It's not about conjuring up like, I just want to feel bad about myself. It's like, no, you've got junk there that you've got to deal with. It's, it really is there, and it's not going anywhere. And if you don't let the gospel address it, it's going to sink you, Right? I mean, the thing is, what sank the Titanic is not what they saw. It's what they didn't see and what they didn't deal with beneath the surface. And the same is true for you. Um, Sigmund Freud might have been crazy uh, in some ways. And he got a lot of things wrong, but he was right when he said this. He said, um, the things about ourselves that we refuse to acknowledge actually have the most power and authority over our lives. That which we avoid will most tyrannize us. So put another way, whatever you refuse to own will wind up owning you. And you'll, dry, you'll be driven by, guys, I'm telling you from intimate experience, you'll be driven by this dysfunction, by these distorted motivations, and it's going to absolutely, you're, you're going to hit a wall. And ultimately, it's going to sabotage your life with God and your life with others. And so if that's true, here's what I want to do just to kind of love us and help us for just a moment. What I want to do kind of with the rest of our time this morning is I want us just to kind of all take a deep breath and plunge beneath the surface for just a moment and kind of just at least put our toe in the water and see what is it that's actually going on beneath the surface so that we can bring it to Jesus and we can begin to heal and be transformed into the men and women God made us to be. Can we do that? Can we just kind of hold our breath, take a deep breath, and, and, and look under the hood for just a moment? Here's what I want to do. Okay, so let's, let's go there. Um, what you're going to realize as soon as you do that, if, you're, if you dive down beneath the surface, immediately the first wall that you're going to hit on this inward journey is you're going to realize something's wrong with my heart, man. Something is wrong with my heart. There's some sort of blockage in my heart that's preventing me from receiving God's love for my identity. Something that's keeping me from trusting him fully and completely. I had a conversation with Steve Carpenter this week, um, our very own. Um, who had you know, a heart attack a few weeks ago, and I was saying how thankful we are, all of us, that he's okay. And he was talking about how the reason he had a heart attack is because there was a blockage in his heart that made his heart weak, right? It wouldn't function properly. Paul says that's the problem. That's why he says your heart needs to be strengthened, right? There's some kind of blockage in there that's keeping us from being with Jesus. And so you can describe this blockage in a lot of different ways. The Bible describes the root of it as something called sin, Okay, so apart from God's grace, your sin is the primary barrier between uh, your heart and Jesus. It's the primary thing that's keeping you from trusting him completely. And I realize sin's a loaded term. Like if you grew up in the religious south, you're probably familiar with this word. But my guess is you kind of have a narrow understanding of what sin actually is. Because we tend to think of sin on the surface as behavioral stuff. Don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, don't, you know, date girls who do. Right? And... And, um, and so, and I followed the, those rules for a while and then broke it when I married a woman who does all those things. Um, so yeah, and she's serving, so she didn't hear that. Um, 
and don't tell her I said it. But um, those things can be sinful, right? But the problem is the Bible's definition of sin is so much broader than that. And I, and I, like, I like Richard Plass and Jim Cofield's biblical definition of sin. So let me put it on the screen for you. They define sin like this. Sin is a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. And what these guys are saying is if you trace the word sin back to the garden in Genesis 3, you see that at its root, sin is a failure to trust God. You want to know what the root of all your brokenness and all your baggage is? Like the biggest problem you and I have is that in the core of our being, we struggle and often fail to trust God. That's it, guys. It's, it's that simple and it's that complex. We don't trust him. We don't trust him to be enough for us. We don't trust that he loves and cares for us. We don't trust that he is who he says he is and he's done what he said he would do in Christ. We don't trust that, that he can run our life better than we can. And so we do what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3 and we take our very life into our own hands because we fail to trust God. And you want to know what the problem is? Um, because trust is the key to intimacy and deep relationships, a lack of trust always leads to separation, which is exactly what happens in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve are walking with God like humanity was living in communion with God. We were trusting him. We were being with him. We were receiving his love for our identity. And the moment his love comes into question, the moment we fail to trust him, instantly our hearts go from connection to separation. And now you look at the Bible and you look at your own life and the rest of the story is one of us kind of wandering around above the waterline trying to figure out who in the world we are apart from God. So you want to know what the first thing going on in your heart is? It's kind of keeping you disconnected from God. We sin, which means we fail to trust him. And that's not the only thing that's happening. To make matters worse, you don't have to turn there, but let me just kind of stay in Genesis 3 for a moment immediately in Genesis 3, right after we fail to trust God, you see this, this emotional, spiritual devastation that comes into our hearts and our relationships. And our hearts become plagued with guilt, fear, and shame. You see it show up immediately in the garden. All these are relational emotions, by the way. Um, they have to do with you know, how I see others, how I see myself, and how I see others seeing me. And when you live your life trying to defend yourself against guilt, fear, and shame, that's what naturally keeps us disconnected from God and from others. And you see that in Genesis 3. First thing that happens, um, Adam and Eve sin against God. The very first thing you see in Genesis 3, 7 is they discover their nakedness, and what do they do? They, they cover, right? They put these fig leaves on. What emotion are they trying to overcome when they cover? Shame. Right, the text says they were, they, they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and ashamed. And so for the first time in human history, they, they feel this shame and they feel this need to kind of cover. And we have that now. We've inherited that now by the nature of sin that lives in us. And shame, guys, is this brutal monster. It's this thing that says, I'm worthless. I'm so bad that if you knew the real me, there's no way you could possibly love me. There's no way you could possibly accept me. Um, and so what I need to do is I need to cover up. I need to put on a mask. I need to be somebody else. Maybe I can be what you think I need to be. I can project a different image so that maybe you'll love me and accept me. And you see, that's exactly what Adam and Eve did with God immediately. They put on these fig leaves. What are your fig leaves? What's the mask that you're tempted to wear? When that doesn't work, they go from wearing a mask to just completely trying to hide from him. Right, So the next thing you see in Genesis 3, 8 is God comes looking for Adam. 
God says, where are you? Which is not a geographical question, by the way. God knows exactly where Adam's located. He can see him. It's like when my kid tries to hide from me. Like I can see her arms and legs like sticking out from under the chair. Like it doesn't work. Like he knows exactly where Adam's at. He knows exactly where you are, by the way. He sees you and he sees everything going on beneath the surface. And he's asking you the same question. Where are you? And it's not a geographical question. It's a relational question. He's saying, where are you? You're supposed to be with me. I want you close. Come back to me. But Adam and Eve are separated from God because they're hiding because now they're driven by this exaggerated sense of fear. Where's that driving you and controlling you in your life? This fear and this anxiety, this worry. And then the last thing you see in Genesis 3, verses 11 through 13, God comes to Adam and says, Hey, dude, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And what does, God, what does Adam do? He blames his wife, right? Because now for the first time ever in human history, he feels, uh, he feels this weight of this guilt, right? And so his defense mechanism is, I'm going to blame shift and, sh- and self-justify. And he says, hey, no, look, I just came home from, for, you know, from work and she said dinner was ready and I just ate. Like, <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. The woman you gave me, she did this, right? She did it. And he just throws his wife under the bus of God's wrath. And like, this is how you know the honeymoon phase is over, by the way. Like, it's, it is done, right? And you can see how this stuff destroys our relationships. The point is, guys, what you, what, here's what Genesis 3 is trying to tell you. All you have to do is be born. And this is how you naturally relate to God and to others and to yourself in a fallen world. We relate through a sinful mistrust. And we now relate through shame, fear, and guilt. And the defense mechanisms that we adopt like to, to overcome those emotions, the fact that we cover, we hide, and we blame, that's what keeps us disconnected from God on the surface. Because if I'm relating to you through a covering and through hiding and posturing and through self-justifying and that kind of defensiveness, like you're not getting the real me. I don't have a trusting, receptive heart. Like I'm going to keep God and everyone else um, at arm's length, which is how I've lived so much of my life. And, you know, this defensiveness, this posture, just kind of as you're looking at it, this is what Christians have for centuries described as a false self. This is not who you were made to be. It's what the Apostle Paul calls the old self. Here's, a, here's kind of a working definition of it. The false self is this taking and defending posture rooted in a mistrusting soul, a strategy for managing and coping with guilt, fear, and shame. It's an image we create to feel loved and accepted and safe. By definition, it's not the trusting, receptive self that God created us to be. You want to know why we live on the surface? Because by nature, we live out of guilt, fear, and shame, and we live with a defensive posture. Here's what to just to complicate things and make it even more difficult. Not only is this what comes naturally to us by the nature of sin, but this is what is nurtured in us by growing up in a fallen world. The false self is something you lean all the way into very early on um, in childhood. And you can read all about this. This is empirically proven, but it's just kids naturally adopt a survival mechanism just to get through because it's a crazy, chaotic world. Um, again, let me, I'll quote Richard Plass because he says it better than I can. But here's what he says about this. He says, The nurturing you receive, depending on how healthy or unhealthy it was, can severely exaggerate our false way of relating through mistrust and defensiveness and diminish the gifts that God has given us. Or it can cultivate our capacity to love and trust God and others 
and to be fully present as persons who know who they are in Christ. But get this, no matter how good or godly our caregivers were, no one gets out of childhood unscathed. Whether it's an emotionally detached parent, an over-controlling parent, a form of emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, words that were spoken to you, words that were never spoken to you, that you needed to hear like, I love you, you belong, I'm proud of you. Guys, all of us carry wounds from our childhood, wounds from growing up in a fallen world. And if you don't deal with that, that's a problem because our wounds are where we harden our hearts, we develop uh, defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms that keep us disconnected from God. The easiest way to see this is when you think about a physical wound. So if you want to be grossed out on a Sunday morning, I had a righteous planter's wart on my foot. Uh, yeah, it was, the sucker was unbelievably huge, and I just ignored it. For like 14 months, I just walked around with it and ignored it and like ran on it and played basketball on it and all this kind of stuff. And finally, I went to see the doctor and the doctor said, hey, do me a favor. I want you to kind of walk down the hall for a moment. I want, I'm going to watch you walk. And so I thought, all right, I took off walking down the hall. And he says, do you realize that to compensate for the wound, you've literally changed your gait? Like you walk with a limp now and you do it unconsciously. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize that. And he said, yeah, because you don't want to feel, you don't like, because I didn't want to feel pressure. I didn't want to put any pressure on the pain. I didn't want to touch that. I want to avoid that. I don't want to feel the pain. And so therefore, to defend myself against it, I have overcompensated. Now I've changed the way I walk. Guys, the same thing is true with emotional pain. If you don't deal with it, you're just going to compensate for it. And it's going to end up getting worse. Like it's not going to go away. It's going to get worse. It's going to fester and it's going to infect your relationships with God and with others. Hurt people hurt people, right? So like if you don't do something, if you don't like let the gospel address it, it's just not going to go away. It might go to sleep, but eventually it's going to wake up and it's going to sabotage your life and your relationships with God and with others. I'm telling you, I know this from personal experience and I'm not, I'm, I'm just at the very beginning of the journey. I'm still figuring this out. The reason why this is true is because like the way God's designed you is your your heart, your soul, your body's like a sponge. You just you absorb and you hold and you internalize all the pain that you've lived. And so here's what Jesus is inviting you to this morning. He's inviting you to come beneath the surface and let him squeeze the sponge so that all this stuff can come out, so that he can heal you and transform you and set you free. So that you can be the person that God created you to be. In essence, what we're talking about here is Jesus says, you've got to put off the false self and put on the true self, right? Paul says, you've got to put off the old self and put on the new self so that you can experience the life that you were created for. You can't continue just to live out of this unrepentant sin and unprocessed pain. Like it's going to, it's going to hijack your life. And so it's this idea, you know, Jesus gives us this powerful image that he says in John 12, 24, I'll put it on the screen for you. But Jesus says, you've got to shed this protective layer and trust him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has given us this powerful biology lesson to address your heart. Like for those of you who garden, you probably already know this, but anytime a seed 
um, is you know kind of born from the mother seed. This uh, the way God's designed it. This this kind of protective layer called a seed coat will grow around the, the tiny embryo until it's ready to germinate, and that seed coat will protect the seed and help it survive for a time. But the problem is the seed coat's not the real seed. In order for the life of the seed to grow and bear fruit, like Jesus says, yeah, man, biologically, the seed coat has to die. It has to be shed. And Jesus is saying the same thing for you and me. He's saying, if you don't shed the protective layer, the false self that you've kind of built, that's keeping you on the surface, you're going to die. Like it's going to suffocate your relationships with God and with others. Jesus says, you've got to let me break into that. And you've got to participate with me in it. My favorite quote from Jim Cofield is he says, the false self's never going to volunteer for its own funeral. You've got to kill it, right? And so the question then becomes, how do we do this, okay? How do we dive down beneath the surface and kind of deal with all this baggage that we have going on? How do we take the gospel beneath the surface and begin to drag this false self into the light of Jesus? And so here's kind of where I want to land. Um, One of the best tools that we have found for this is the Enneagram. I'll put a little image of it on the screen here for you. Um, and just to set you up for your practice this week, let me give you a very brief overview of the Enneagram. The first thing I want to do is just be very clear that this is only a tool. Okay, all the power for, for salvation and for transformation is found in the gospel. Paul's clear about that in Romans 1.16. The reason why the Enneagram is so helpful is because it's a tool for the gospel. Um, it's a vehicle that the Holy Spirit can use to kind of drive the gospel into the uncharted waters of your heart, places you've never been, places you don't want to go, places you need to go so you can meet Jesus and be healed. And so, um, by the way, also, just to be clear, that's not a pentagram. Uh, we uh, follow Jesus. We do not follow Satan here. Uh, and so I just want to be very, uh, just very clear in case that was in question. Um, the reality is followers of Jesus have used this, this personality tool uh, we know for over a millennia and a half. And so just to break it down real quick, Enneagram is a Greek word. Ennea means nine. Gram means diagram. So it's this nine-pointed diagram of these nine different but interconnected personalities. And so unlike any other uh, you know, personality tool, what sets it apart is the Enneagram is not trying to measure how you do tasks. It's trying to measure who you are and how you relate to God, to others, and to yourself. And according to the Enneagram, you see you've got these nine basic types, these nine different ways of relating. Each personality has particular strengths and weaknesses or uh, blessings and brokenness, if you will. And so um, basically, it's trying to help you kind of discover your true self and the unique ways you bear God's image and discover your false self in the unique ways you've been affected by sin and the fall, and how all of that's affecting your spiritual life with God. Um, John Stark, he says it like this. He says, The Enneagram helps us see how fear might be controlling us, how shame might be motivating us, and how guilt might be crippling us. Like a tracer chemical in the bloodstream that helps identify the disease, the Enneagram helps bring to the surface indicators of what might be motivating sinful or harmful actions or behaviors or patterns. And so with those resources, we can press into Christ seeking healing and transformation in the gospel. That's the point. That's the inward journey. This is only a tool that can help you go there. And so we'll put the, put the image back on the screen. You've got nine types. There's no way we have time to talk about this, but just to, just to name each one as you're looking at it. You've got type one, 
which is the good person. They reflect the goodness and righteousness of God, but can be given to perfectionism and anger. You've got type two, which is the loving person. They reflect the love and the care of God, but can be given to pride and the need to be needed. Type three is the effective person. That's Jared and Luke. Um, They reflect the hope and the excellencies of God, but can be given to a need to perform and be seen. Type four is the original person. They reflect the creativity and the depth of God, but can be given to envy and melancholy. Type five is the wise person. We've Tim Parrott up here leading worship. Uh, They reflect the wisdom and the knowledge of God, but can be given to greed and withholding themselves. Type six is the loyal person, which is me, and the most anxious person of all of the Enneagram types. Thank you very much. Uh, they reflect the faithfulness and the steadfastness of God, but like I said, can be given to anxiety and self-doubt. Type 7 is the joyful person. Uh, Darius. That's right, baby. Uh, Savannah, who was up here singing, right? They reflect the joy and the abundance of God, but can be given to gluttony and addiction. Uh, type 8 is the powerful person. They reflect the power and the protection of God, but can be given to a lust for control and power trips. Uh, Top nine, which is literally every single pastor's wife at Fellowship, (laughs) along with Matt Jackson, uh, and uh, they uh, reflect the peace and the oneness of God, but can be given to apathy and be passive-aggressive. And, uh, and so there are so many layers to this. We don't have time to unpack those arrows you see or how um, each type kind of in their own triad is being controlled by guilt, fear, and shame and how the gospel addresses that, the false narratives and childhood wounds that each lives into. But I will say this, we're going to unpack all of that this weekend at the Enneagram Workshop. And so I would encourage you, if you can at all possible be there, come. Um, you, can, you can sign up on the app for that. Friday night, 6 to 8 p.m., desserts provided. Saturday morning, 9 to 11 a.m., we're going to serve breakfast. It's $10 if you're not a member. Um, man, I, this, is, this is a great investment and a great tool in your spiritual life and relationships. Um, and so um, to help you kind of prepare for that, there's a practice this week. Because information without application doesn't equal transformation, we want to practice this inward journey. We want to actually try to take the gospel beneath the surface and deal with what's there. Um, And so um, to do that, you can find on your app, there's a practice for this week. There's a link for you to take the Enneagram test if you've never taken it, and then some questions and some stuff for you to read and process through. And so I want to encourage you to do that with your missional communities and your fight clubs, and uh, I think that's going to be a great resource for you moving forward. It's certainly one of the best tools we have discovered for our spiritual formation. Let me just close by saying this. I want to just say I want to remind you why this matters, okay? Because I feel like I've said a lot. To the extent that you're aware of what's going on beneath the surface is the extent to which you are tapping into the power of the gospel. To the extent that you are aware of what's going on beneath the surface is, is the extent to which you are trusting and receiving the love of Christ for your true identity. And remember, none of this is about morbid introspection or obsessing over your sin. The Enneagram is simply trying to help you take the mask off so the real Jesus can meet the real you. And for some of you, maybe that would happen for the first time this morning. A good rule of thumb, by the way, on this journey is so you don't obsess over your sin and brokenness is um, Robert Murray McShane's rule of every time you take a look at your sin, take 10 looks at Jesus. 
Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's only by beholding Jesus and the love that he has for you that you could possibly put off the old self and put on the new self. That's what changes you guys, is beholding Jesus. And that's what this is all about. He is at the core of your being by faith, waiting uh, for fellowship with you. You want to behold him, you've got to dive down there and be with him. Okay, That's what this is about. And what we celebrate every week when we come to this table is that Jesus is our only hope. We, we come to this table with nothing but our need for his grace. We don't have to have all this figured out. You might have your toe in the water. You might be standing above the water going, there's no way I'm going down there. Hey, man, there's grace for that. And so we come to this table and we celebrate every week that Jesus has literally brought us into union and communion with God.